Welcome to The Fairer Sense. With me, Tanya. And me, Kara. Women, money, and the fight to break even. Because we give a shit. And you should too. midterm elections and our money. Hello, Tanya. Hello, Kara. I feel like it has been so long since we've been here in front of our mics in our pillow forts (laughs) talking to each other. (laughs) And it hasn't actually been all that long, but it's so exciting to be able to bring an episode between seasons, even though we are hard at work at season three, we have some important stuff we want to talk about like right now. Yeah, truly time sensitive. And I'm really excited about today's episode because it's very near and dear to my heart, I think, as it is to yours. It for sure is. I spent my career in politics and politics adjacent causes. And so this is something that I feel really strongly about as you know, my vocation, but also just as a human and a woman and a person in the world who cares about how other people are doing. So um, yeah, we're, we're of course talking about women in politics and how we can get closer to equal representation. I have not worked in politics, but I started volunteering when I was in high school on political campaigns, did it throughout college, do it today. <laughs> politics are so integral to our lives really on a day-to-day basis. And I think that we often get caught up in like the presidential election and think that's the only election that matters. But everything from school boards to judges to city council members are decided through elections in some places. And so with the midterms just around the corner, we wanted to have an episode dedicated to all things women, money, and politics. It's really stark when you actually look at statistics on this. I think we all know, you know, we've had zero women presidents in the U.S., even though other countries in the world have had women leaders for over half a century at this point. But if you actually break it down, it's super bleak. Out of 110 countries, the U.S. is 104th in the world in women's representation in government. I mean, it's fairly horrifying that we are not just not leading the way, but we are lagging behind literally (laughs) every country in terms of how many women are in leadership roles. And that has a detrimental effect all the way down. We have you know, some of the issues we talk about all the time here on The Fair Sense, like the wage gap and the lack of paid maternal or paternal leave, the lack of paid childcare, things that other countries have settled long ago and have figured out long ago, those are a direct result of not having enough women in elected office and not in enough leadership roles generally. Absolutely. It really is, once you start to look at it, you realize, oh, not only can people not be what they don't see? So not having a female president means that little girls are just less likely to think of themselves as capable of being a president, but not having someone who has firsthand experience being a woman in higher offices means that they don't think of women's needs or concerns um, when they go to create legislation and when they vote for things. And women having been locked out of United States politics for so long, since the founding of our country, has really shaped the political landscape we see today where women are Mm -hmm. pissed, (laughs) women are not being represented, and women are ready to be involved. 
which is so exciting, but there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. I mean, I think it really speaks to the fact that we have created this narrative in the U.S. We talk a lot about men being the default or male being the default. We've really created this belief among people that men are gender neutral on a certain level, that like whatever men are talking about, that just affects everyone. And we don't acknowledge that when men are talking, it's gendered. But women, we feel very aware of our gender and we are very aware that when we're talking, it tends to be perceived in a gendered way. And I think that has a really detrimental effect on politics because we seem to think that men can just represent everyone, but that if women get elected, they're only going to represent certain people. And that's not a belief that's universal in the world. This Vox piece that I pulled the 104th in the world stat from also looks at some other stats. Like, for example, Bolivia, over 50% of its legislature is women. And you look at other countries like Sweden. I love this example from the Vox story. In 1971, 14% of Sweden's legislators were women. And they decided the next year, 1972, this is over 40 years ago, uh, the Liberal Party set a quota that 40% of its candidates going forward would be women. And the other parties followed in the 70s and 80s and set their own quotas for female candidates. And now Sweden's government is 43.6% women, which is sixth in the world. And that's something that 40 plus years ago they recognized was a necessity, that women needed to be more represented. And here we are in the U.S. in 2018 sitting on a House of Representatives and a Senate that are only about 20 and 25 percent female, respectively. It's not okay. And this is really something that we need to focus on now because we keep having this narrative of the year of the woman and look at all these women running. And this is something that repeats itself about every 20 years or so. But we need to finally actually break through this glass ceiling and not just keep talking about it. I'm going to invite everyone to just buckle up because I'm going to talk about pap smears. (laughs) (laughs) I recently went to the doctor and got my well woman exam, which includes a pap smear. And I was telling T-Bone, oh, you know, like, Went to the doctor, so proud of myself, <laughs> hashtag adulting. And he went, what What exactly is a pap smear? Like, I know it has something to do with the, your downstairs mix up, but I don't know what it is. And of course he doesn't. He's never gotten one. He never will. So I explained to him what it is and <laughs> described the experience. But if we take that one step further, like imagine T-Bone running for office and getting to legislate women's health and not knowing what happens during a pap smear. And that is a lot of our elected male officials. And unless you go looking for something, unless you ask someone to describe an experience, you know, you're just going to float on without it. And you're not going to think, oh, yeah, we should give women access to pap smears because you're not going to know what the F they are and you're not going to think it's important. And so for that reason alone, (laughs) it's important to have representation in our government. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that that reminds me. I mean, there's so many examples of men having control over women's reproductive health without actually understanding what's happening. But I think back to 2012, Todd Aiken, the representative from Missouri, had that statement about legitimate rape, Mm -hmm. that if it's legitimate rape, you cannot get pregnant and therefore we don't need exceptions in abortion ban laws. And there was an amazing video that went around Maybe, Kara, you saw it. It was like a spoof of a pharmaceutical ad. So like, here's your new method of birth control. It's called legitimate rape. And um, that was pretty amazing. We'll link to it in the show notes. That just so speaks to all these like fucked up backward views that a lot of men carry about women's bodies and how they work. And they get to legislate on that basis. And 
that affects our health. It affects our money because how many women have children and have to pay the motherhood penalty with work when they didn't necessarily intend to become mothers? Or, you know, this is something that always makes me crazy about the abortion discussion is that people talk about it as though this is like single, young, partying women who just want easy birth control. Like, I'm sorry, but an abortion is not easy birth control. The fact is 75% of abortions are had by women who already have children. So this is mothers by and large who are having these, who are already paying the price, who just can't necessarily afford to have more kids. And yet, like we have all these illusions about like, oh, well, if you're raped, you can't actually get pregnant because your body has a way to shut that whole thing down. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I believe, his exact quote. The body has ways of shutting that down, which is so disrespectful and so awful on so many levels. And just wrong, like science. Completely (laughs) wrong. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. You know, I agree with everything you said. The other thing too, to step out of a doctor's office and to just think about women getting their periods or people who get periods, you know, you have to buy pads or tampons or diva cups and they are taxed as luxury items because again, (laughs) a lot of our elected officials are not getting periods and they don't understand that it's a necessity. They don't understand that people who get periods shouldn't be taxed on that because it happens pretty much every month. And let me tell you, to quote Mean Girls, if you have a heavy flow and a wide set vagina, you can really work through a lot of tampons. So that can be a huge, I know it's, it's, it's so funny to quote Mean Girls and I'm hilarious, but it can be such a huge expense, especially now you're adding tax on top of that. That's not okay. That's discriminatory. And it would be so easy to just simply remove the tax off of that to save people who have periods money. It's so, I mean, I want to say interesting, but really what I mean is something worse. Like it's so horrifying that it feels like all the debates about healthcare always seem to gravitate toward discussions of birth control and sometimes abortion, but more often birth control. Like the Affordable Care Act guarantees coverage for birth control for the first time in history. If you have an ACA compliant health insurance plan, your birth control is covered. Then there was that famous Hobby Lobby case that went to the Supreme Court and said that if you're a religious employer, you don't have to cover birth control. And the fact that a giant craft store can qualify as a religious employer, I think, speaks to some of the problems there. Like if you're a church, okay, fine. But a giant retailer seems to me um, a stretch to call yourself a religious employer. But why are we not talking about Viagra? Like why are we not talking about anything that affects men ever? It's always focused on women and our bodies and never on men and their bodies. And that has a very direct impact. If you have to pay for birth control versus if it's covered, that is a huge financial difference for a lot of women. Absolutely. Or if you just don't worry about birth control because you're a dude, or if you buy a five ninety nine. 25 pack of condoms as opposed to having to pay. When I was uninsured in 2014, I had to buy birth control and it was $60 per month. And I asked T-Bone to split it with me. So I got it down to 30 bucks, but that can be a huge amount of money to some people. And I had it, uh, I was taking like a generic birth control, but there are lots of other, there are lots of more expensive birth controls. And if they're not covered by your insurance or if you don't get them for free, that can be a huge financial burden. I mean, imagine if it was $120 a month, you know, that's more than some people's phone bills. (laughs) I mean, yeah, my IUD, I'm on my third IUD and I saw the bill for it they billed my insurance company $1,200. And now granted, that's for five years. And if you work that out for each month, it's still a pretty good deal. But I paid $0 for that. 
And that's something that a lot of male lawmakers would like to take away and would like to force me to pay for that. And that's real money. Like coming up with 1200 bucks at one time, that's not something that's realistic. When we know that 70% of Americans would struggle to pay a $400 bill, think about a $1,200 IUD. Like that's just not going to happen. Right. There are economic impacts beyond just individual wallets as well. And I think that that is so forgotten in our politics. But this is not our birth control episode, though maybe we will do a birth control episode because obviously we have things to say. So to kind of loop it back, we're talking about the midterms. We want to encourage everyone to get out and vote in their area. And I personally want to encourage everyone to take a friend with you to vote. America sucks at voting. We have historically low voter turnout, especially for midterm elections. So please get out to your polling place, grab a buddy, take them with you. We're going to do a lot more of a get out the vote message at the end of it, regardless of who you're voting for. What we care is just that you're getting out and participating. But just think about all the different things that this affects. You know, we know from statistics that when women are in charge of companies, those companies are more profitable and they return more money to shareholders. We know that when women are elected leaders, you have less corruption in government. They also think about a lot of the issues that men don't think about beyond things like birth control in our bodies. They're thinking about schools and helping kids actually graduate ready to get into the workforce, which boosts our entire economy, which boosts productivity, which is good for share prices. I mean, this stuff is definitely linked to our money. And so keep that in mind as we go through the rest of this episode. I spoke with Lily Herman, who is a fellow Wesleyan grad and also a freelance writer. She does a lot of writing for Refinery29 in the politics and wellness beat. She also is the founder of an organization called Get Her Elected, which offers pro bono support on a myriad of levels to progressive female candidates running for office. The 2016 election was a catalyst, but I, I'm definitely not alone in the number of particularly women who noted a lot of patterns and systemic issues early on. And then, you know, the election forced us to to act in certain ways that maybe we wouldn't have before. So for me, Get Her Elected started in December 2016, January 2017. Even prior to that, I had worked on a couple of campaigns, volunteered for a bunch of campaigns in the past, and had also worked with a variety of organizations uh, as a volunteer that were really trying to help women running for office. And a huge issue I, again, just noticed over the years is that there were starting to be an increasing number of organizations dedicated to empowering women to run, getting their foot in the door, just getting them to see running as something that they could do. But the problem was just by by sheer issues of bandwidth and so many priorities, a lot of women, once they actually entered their races, filed the paperwork ready to go, were, were left to fend for themselves. And again, I don't fault organizations for doing that. Uh, no, no one can be all things to all people. That's one thing I just sort of noticed over the years was just hearing women talking about running. You know, I, they had all the support to to actually get them to run. And then as soon as, as they were actually a candidate, a lot of that evaporated or there just wasn't anyone really there. I sent out a tweet, just said, hey, if, if you want to work with, I think I even just said liberal candidates, you know, email me here. And, you know, again, expecting maybe a dozen people to email me tops. And that single tweet produced 80 as in eight zero emails. So obviously I was on to something a little more than I, I realized at the time. And so since then, just to give a little more context, uh, Get Her Elected is about to cross the um, threshold of 3,200 volunteers. And we are currently working with uh, over 260 women who are running for office uh, at all levels of government, 
uh, federal, state, and local, and they're running in almost every state in the U.S. Are you compensated for this? I'm not. It's completely, uh, you know, free in, in every sense of the word. In terms of, I'm not getting paid for it. No one's getting paid for it, and everyone's skills are are volunteered. I've definitely gone back and forth on it. Um, I definitely have had consulted people in terms of should I be paid or not paid? Or should I pursue being paid for it? And there are some real advantages to not being paid for it. Um, one, I, I don't have to deal with a lot of, obviously, I'm, I'm working on our legal structure and whatnot for a variety of reasons. But uh, I don't deal with a lot of issues that other political orgs run into. Second, I, I you know, no one's no one's sitting around accusing me of any sort of financial gain out of this. So you know, which no one ever has. But uh, that's also a nice aspect. And, and quite frankly, too, I think, you know, I'm someone who always always working on 18 different things at once. And if get elected was my sole focus, I quite frankly would probably go get, get a little nutty. Well, along the, the line of numbers and money, do you have any statistics or insight into how much it costs someone to run for election? Yeah. So this really varies depending on the office. So obviously we see congressional candidates, for instance, getting into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, quite a few are crossing the million plus threshold in terms of how much it takes to run. But then on, on the state level, you have people running running for office and spending anywhere from $10,000 to $50,000 is typically what I've generally heard, even though, again, some candidates might self-fund and spend half a million on their state race and others might spend no money, you know, who, who knows? Um, and locally, it really, really varies, again, on if people want to self-fund or, or not. Um, but I, by and large, I've, again, seen a lot of, especially first-time candidates, particularly women, get pretty creative in terms of uh, how how far they can stretch their dollars just because there there are none to to stretch. Races can be so expensive and that can be one of the barriers for people, especially marginalized groups, to get involved. I read that women so women have not traditionally run for office in the same numbers that men have, and that is because of a lot of systemic barriers. And I read that there's a study that women need to be asked repeatedly to run for office. Women rarely think, I can do that. I should run. It's, hey, you should run, Susie. And then you have to remind Susie, hey, Susie, run <laughs> several times before she actually fills out the paperwork. Can you talk a little bit about the history and some of the factors that have prevented women from running for office? So first and foremost, I think there's the issue that, you know, women aren't seen as leaders or more quote unquote masculine qualities are seen as uh, leadership potential. So you have that issue right off the bat going all the way back to, you know, elementary school and, and even further back where women aren't necessarily the ones pursuing leadership positions or being told that they should pursue them or that that's a career path for them. Um, similarly, politics is seen as, again, a quote unquote masculine profession. So anytime we see women acting in a not you know, ladylike or likable way, again, they, they get kind of branded as um, you know a bad person in a way that a man never would. On top of that, uh, there are also issues too with, you know, we always talk about you can't be what you can't see. So if you don't see any women in a boardroom or in Congress, uh, you're less likely to believe that you belong there or should be there. So that's an entire issue. Um, and another thing, too, that speaks to the number of organizations, especially women-centric ones popping up now, you know, we forget that even going back to the founding of the United States and even before that, um, this country was built by um, old, rich, rich white men. So it's not made for women, um, just structurally speaking. And if you think about it, you know, men have created in politics these boys' clubs since, since again, the creation of this country. Um, women have had to play catch up to that um, and, and other marginalized groups as well uh, and, and are trying to, you know, combat 
200 plus years of history that men have just not had to contend with. It's so funny. I was recently on another podcast and the host essentially asked me, what is the root of sexism? (laughs) And I said something similar along the lines of, you know, you think about the founding of the United States. It was a bunch of rich landholding white men who made all the decisions and they left out people of color. They left out women in terms of access to the institution. We have just been playing catch up ever since. And not only were we left out of the beginning, but more and more barriers in some ways have been placed in front of us. And women only got the right to vote in 1920 in the US and the country was founded in 1776. It's insane to think about all of the decisions that were made where there were no women, there were no people of color in the room. As you were saying, the other issues we've faced as a country in particular, and this also goes for a lot of other places around the world, you know, obviously the more underrepresented groups protest, the more that the tiny minority who holds all the power uh, rebels and rebels against that and, and really tries to try even harder to to keep those groups out. And it's fascinating and sad. You know, currently women are about 19.5% of Congress, and that's such a small number. And... I think about how 1992, I mean, I was only four years old in 1992, but it was dubbed the year of the woman. And that's because we elected four women to Senate and one woman was reelected. So five total. And people are like, this is the year of the woman. And it's like, yo, there are a hundred (laughs) senators. And now we have five of them that are women. And that's the year of the woman. Are you kidding me? And I've been seeing these phrases come back for this year because we do have more women running. And it's I think about the Ruth Bader Ginsburg quote where they ask her, you know, how many women on the Supreme Court is enough? And she says nine. (laughs) I love that because I completely agree. Let's talk a little bit action. On the show, we try not to preach to people and we try not to say, here's the correct way to do things. But midterms are so soon. And I know that every day it seems like it's another like news disaster and people feel really overwhelmed and really scared and really angry by our current political climate. What do you recommend people do to make an impact for the midterms? In terms of other people, I think, yeah, I think the biggest complaint I hear, even from people who should, I, you know, people who I, I thought were doing all this stuff already and just aren't, um, I think the biggest thing is to just find a specific action um, or, and also find a couple of opportunities and then pick and choose from those. So I always tell people with Get Her Elected, I think it's overwhelming to say, oh, I'm going to volunteer for uh, these 260 candidates. That's really just a lot. So I just say, you know, I tell people, just sign up for the email list. You know, there's nothing... You won't get in trouble for not doing, you know, participating for a while, but you're on the email list. So that gives you the opportunity, if you want it, to, you know, help a certain candidate that really interests you or really excites you. Start with, yeah, I'm going to donate 20 bucks to this candidate I really like. Or maybe your thing is that you're going to donate, you know, what, what is it, $20 and 18 cents has been the latest, you know, donation amount. So you're going to donate that to, to a different candidate once a week. Um, easy thing to start with. You know, maybe just focus on, phone banking for two hours a week, you know, filling out postcards to voters for three hours a week, whatever it is, I think just breaking it down. So that way it's, it's actionable. And um, I think that's where it begins. And also, you know, I think at the end of the day too, a lot of people now are uh, discovering, you know, political engagement for either the first time or the first time in many years or even decades. So I think it's, it's also okay to do all of that stuff with a little bit of joy and a little bit of fun, you know, campaigning's hard and the country is really dire, but you know, you should feel really excited about a lot of the candidates. And I, of course, will say a lot of the women candidates uh, that are in the mix right now. On a previous episode we did, we talked about taking action in small ways in our lives. And I love the idea of donating 
$20.18. It's you don't have to be all things to all people. It's I'm going to be this one thing to this one person in this one way. One of the easiest things you can do is make sure that everyone around you is registered to vote and knows their ballot, knows who's on the ballot, also knows what initiatives are on the ballot. And being the person who just tells people they need to be registered, they need to be educated, and then yells at people till they literally go you know, drag them to the polls and get them in there with their ballots, that goes a long way. That, that's a huge action. So I think it's so interesting to hear Lily talk about the reasons why women don't run, because we know that when women run for political office, they are just as likely as men to get elected. It's just a complicated thing, you know, like there are all these societal expectations placed on women to give free labor in the home, to do emotional labor in our partnerships, to care for children, to care for parents, to do all of that unpaid stuff that adds more to our plates. So the thought of running feels so much bigger and more daunting to already busy women compared to how it must feel for men. So I think there's really a lot behind that, but it is good to know that when we do run, we can actually go and win those seats. Absolutely. At Women's in the United States current rate of election, we won't achieve full legislative parity for another hundred, which feels so demoralizing. But to your point, actually, when women get out, women win. So we need to invite the women in our lives to run. We need to support them financially as well as in the myriad of ways that people need to be supported when they're running. Because winning is, there's not just a slim chance. There's a very good chance you'll win. The 100 years timeline is about the same as the timeline for when we're going to get wage parity, right? (laughs) So if the world doesn't end from climate change and the current political apocalypse, uh, in 100 years, our, you know, great grandchildren can expect to have political and wage equality. So hooray. Um, I'm just kidding. I think we can do better. I think we just have to change the trajectory. But some of the stuff that like I've seen from being behind the scenes in politics that I think is important to recognize is it's not just that like women are sitting at home thinking, oh, I couldn't do this or, oh, I'm going to doubt myself. There are very real systemic barriers to, for example, running for statewide or national office. Most of those decisions are made by parties. So for example, in California, where I live, the California Democratic Party endorses people. That endorsement carries a great deal of weight. They actually this year did a completely bonkers thing and didn't even endorse Dianne Feinstein, our longtime senator, because of the delegates who showed up. And they were all in favor of Kevin DeLeon, who's been a state uh, representative for a long time, a state leader. You know, he's a young guy and there's definitely a heavy dose of ageism going on there where we have a very senior woman who's senior Democrat on the Judiciary Committee, but they think that she has been too moderate and not liberal enough, so they don't support her. So she's probably still going to be fine and get reelected. But you look at that same effect all the way down the line. And if a woman can't get the support of a party, she can't necessarily even win a primary or even get on the ballot in the first place. And that's something that happens all over the country. Like you look at two of the most liberal states, California and New York, we actually have very bad ratios. We have three men to every one woman in state politics. And I'm positive that that is in large part because of the political party machines operating behind the scenes that give their blessing to certain candidates and not to others. And I think that's something that so few people really consider. I certainly don't consider it all that often when I think to myself, 
women should run more. We should have more women running. But there are systems in place that uh, you need to work within. And I don't just mean like democracy. <laughs> you know, There are these individual states, laws, and rules that you need to know about so that you can play within them so that you can land on the national or state level. It's really a gatekeeper system is really the truth. And and a huge part of it, honestly, too, is your ability to raise money. And I do think there's something in the way that women are socialized that makes it a little bit harder for us to ask people for money and to do the fundraising component, which, frankly, if you're a member of Congress or you're running for Congress, it's a full-time job. Like fundraising, asking people, you have to run every two years. So you're constantly in fundraising mode where, at least in the Senate, you get a few years off between elections and, and you can take some time off from asking for money. But if you're not comfortable directly saying to people's face like, hey, I need a contribution from you, you're not going to get elected. And I do think that for women, that is a higher bar or a, a bigger barrier than it is for men. Oh, totally. Well, it goes back to what I would imagine the same situation that women face when they ask for more money in a job negotiation. People view them as greedy or rude or I just didn't like her. <laughs> And oh, yeah. Just no, there's like just a, something about her that rubs me the wrong way. Oh, God. My grandma says that about Hillary Clinton. And I'm just like, Grandma, that's not a real reason to dislike someone. <laughs> it's just not. It's just not. So, yeah, yeah. There are, again, these in internal biases. You know, one of the things that I'm I'm really hopeful for this year, we've had so many people engaged, so many people out protesting, so many people calling Congress about legislation. We saw all the women fill up the Senate buildings on the Hill when they were doing the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. This is a time when people are really paying attention that does feel different and that does feel bigger than in the past. And I hope that we can take that energy to the polls and you know, obviously I have my own political leanings, but really if it results in more women getting elected, that's going to be a good thing and is is really what it's going to take to change the trajectory we're on. Because if you look back in 1980, again, almost 40 years ago, there was equal representation at the Democratic National Convention between men and women. So again, 40 years ago. And that was something where they gave themselves a huge pat on the back and they said, look at us, look at what a great job we're doing. But yet we still only have a handful of senators who are women. We've had zero presidents who've been women. We've had two female vice presidential candidates ever, both of whom lost, and one was Sarah Palin, so she kind of doesn't count. There are things that we've done that on some level feel like empty gestures. Like, yeah, it's great that we had equal representation, but what good are equal delegates if it doesn't actually result in more women leaders? It's sort of like, yeah, okay, Fortune 500 companies are starting to have more women on the boards of directors. Like we're up to almost 30% of women on boards, but it's still under 10% of CEOs. It's like 5% of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies are women. So we have to move beyond kind of the gesture level and move to actually putting women in leadership. That's what it's going to take to see real change. And I think what I found to be a very heartening statistic is that this year, over 400 women ran for the U.S. House of Representatives, and there are still 272 women on the ballots for the midterms. So that's huge. I mean, that's a lot of women out there. And it is my hope that, A, we will elect more women into the House, but that this sets a precedent for future generations of women to run um, and to hear more women's voices at the political table from here on out. Because you're absolutely right. 
we can't just be doing empty handed gestures. I feel like we have done a lot of empty gestures in the past around these things. It's not just enough to say, well, I support that or I'm okay with them running if you don't show up for them at the polls. It's not enough to say I'm in support of this policy for women if you don't elect people who have the power to vote on that policy. We are living in this really heated, really divided, really politically nasty time. And I think if we want to get out of this, we need to have more voices at the table that really represent the United States and don't just represent this really wealthy, really male, really minor portion of the population. I will never forget for virtually my entire career, I worked for a firm that helped elect Barbara Boxer to the Senate. And that was in 1992 uh, from California. In the company's office for my entire career was hanging the front page of the newspaper. I can't remember if it was San Francisco Chronicle or LA Times. It doesn't matter. It was a picture of Barbara Boxer and Dianne Feinstein, two California senators, both being women for the first time, which is very exciting, but holding their hands up together. And it said, Year of the Woman. That was now <laughs> 26 years ago. And if you, in fact, look at the Wikipedia entry for Year of the Woman, it's referring to 1992. That was six women in the Senate. It was not huge. Mm -hmm. And that was considered to be big. Well, we don't have that many more now. And we have to break through this so that it's not just like every 20 years we say, oh, it's year of the woman. Yay. And then we don't actually make meaningful change. And so this year, I do think you're right, Kara. Like we have a historic opportunity. We have a huge number of women on the ballot. We have people really paying attention and engaged in ways that I hope are more powerful than in 2016 when we had pretty abysmal voter participation. For example, like Nevada, which is not thought of as a particularly progressive state, but they have the opportunity to have a majority female legislature for the first time. Um, there are states where we can actually change some of the balance. And that matters because the statewide representation affects redistricting, which allocates House seats. We have a situation right now where we have so much gerrymandering that you can actually win the popular vote for the House by a huge margin and still lose on number of seats because of the gerrymandering. And so these statewide races matter. Getting women there matters. It all matters. And we have an opportunity this year to make a difference. So please get out and vote. Please bring your friends, bring your mom, bring your dad, bring your grandparents, like bring everyone, go vote. I do think that voting has become very cool, actually, in a part of this, this rage <laughs> that I think a lot of people are feeling. It's not something that anyone I know scoffs at or laughs at. There are some people who are still telling me, like, I don't vote for ideological differences. And I think that's ridiculous. But um, I do think that it has become like I'm 30 and I know lots of 22 year olds, 25 year olds, 35 year olds who are like, hell yeah, see you at the polls. You know, like I'm making time for it. I'm making space for it. This is something I take seriously where I don't know that two years ago, 10 years ago, people were as invigorated to vote or it wasn't quite the cultural conversation it is now. And I find that very heartening. I will also say, again, we've kind of been talking about things on the national scale a lot, but I know here in Austin that we currently have a female majority city council and it has been awesome. <laughs> And don't get me wrong, there's women on the city council that I don't always agree with. Um, but we've been able to pass some really progressive things. Women are the majority of hourly workers and minimum wage workers in the United States. And in Austin this year, we passed a mandatory paid time off bill for hourly workers, which 
you know, I worked as a waitress for several years. And if I needed time off from my waiting job, I just like didn't get paid. You know, you're just like, oh, I'm not working today. <laughs> like, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and now hourly workers have that protection, which is such a huge difference and makes such a huge difference in the lives of women. So we're not just talking about the Senate and the House, though those races are super important and have obviously wide reaching impacts. But it takes some time and really learn about what's on the ballot in your city, in your town. Again, Austin has 11 propositions up and I was just reading about them this morning. And that takes some time for me to go through and learn about, but that affects my day-to-day life. I just think it's so important that we see voting through this national scale, but also this hyper-local scale. I think to your point about voting being cool, I do think that there is still some division there. Like I think that there are certain people among whom voting has been cool and that is good. I mean, voting is always cool. It it should be, you know, like I, I did a story way back in 2000 with MTV about choose or lose, which was their, their big youth voter participation push. I mean, this has been something that has always been a struggle to get younger people to care about voting or to think that their vote matters. I think that's the bigger issue. And I do still think there are a lot of folks, you know, those who aren't college educated necessarily or who are lower wage earners don't necessarily see the value in voting. And there are some recent stats, for example, that show that young people express more negative than positive views about recent protests and marches, although women view them more favorably. So a majority of young people say that recent uh, marches are pointless, counterproductive, divisive, or violent. Only about a third say that they've had positive value, saying they are inspiring, powerful, or effective. This is according to PRRI, and I will link to this in the show notes. What we've got to do then is not just go vote, but talk about it. Because We all have broader social circles and there are people in your social circles, people who follow you on social who maybe aren't in the same life situation as you are, maybe aren't as politically engaged, maybe aren't as interested in voting. And so we've just got to make this something we all talk about and not necessarily with a lot of partisan charge behind it. That's something that I often struggle with. It's very hard for me to say like, yeah, I don't care who you're voting for, just vote uh, because I do care who you're voting for. Uh, But If we all talk about it more and we make it a normal thing to do, I do think that is the first step in changing the culture and just getting more people who haven't paid attention before or haven't felt it was worthwhile to actually get out there. And it seems like we've got that energy this year, that potential. And so it's really just about really making the big push for that. And I want to say, I understand that talking about voting or talking about politics may be very difficult for you, depending on your situation and your family and your friends. I happen to be a very outspoken person and to be very comfortable with that and also to have surrounded myself and to have a family that is majority liberal. I do have some very conservative members of my family with whom I fight um, about politics. I recently learned that my grandma voted for Trump and that has been a huge blow to me because I'm very close with my grandma. And I know sometimes it can be very easy to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to to not bring it up. I'm going to just listen to what they're saying and choose to not engage. But I do think, yeah, exactly to your point, Tanya, this is something we need to normalize. It's exactly like the money conversation. We need to normalize talking about money in this country because not talking about it is hurting us and not talking about politics and not talking about voting is hurting us. It keeps the people who are currently in power in power and it keeps the people who are out of power out of power and uninformed. So I just, I really want to encourage you to have conversations and and bring it up in ways that are safe for you. But if you're just uncomfortable, I just really want to encourage everyone to try and push past that and do it in a respectful manner and to get these conversations flowing. 
We have a big opportunity this year, so let's all use it together and not waste it. That's our episode, folks. As always, we want to hear your thoughts. Please tweet at us. Follow us on the Twitters. We are at FairSense. And you can always, always, always shoot us an email at FairSense at gmail.com, especially if you are someone who can't talk politics in their day-to-day life. You can talk politics to us anytime you want. You sure can. And we really welcome opposing viewpoints too. So please feel welcome. We want this always to be a safe space and we're not here to exclude anyone or to shut anybody down. It's really just about thinking about ways that we can get more voices into the conversation, not fewer. And that means voices who don't necessarily agree with us on every little thing. Please tweet at us, send us a note. And if you enjoyed the show or if you've been enjoying the show, generally, we'd love if you would leave us a review, especially if you use iTunes or Apple Podcasts. You can just go click a star review. All you have to do is scroll down on the podcast screen, hit the number of stars you think we need, and that will do it. If you want to leave a text review too, that's awesome, but it's certainly not required. Those really help a lot of people find the show. It helps us secure sponsors so we can keep going with this. And we are really excited to be bringing you season three in just a couple of months. We've got some awesome stuff cooked up. We really, really can't wait. Yeah, season three really is about to be just fire, y'all. We are working really hard on it. We have already secured some really cool guests, and I'm super excited for season three. So just tingling with excitement, if you will. (laughs) Tingling away over here. And so in that spirit, let's all be tingly together and go vote and change the world and rock our money, rock representation, and everybody stay rad. Stay rad. The Fairer Sense are me, Tanya Hester, and the world's best co-host, Kara Perez. Our theme song is by The Insider. Our ad music is by Kevin McLeod. And you can find out more info about the other artists you hear on the show at our website, thefairersense.com. You can always find me at ournextlife.com and Kara at bravelygo.co. historically low Turner um, I was going to say Turner vote out um <laughs>